<laughs> it was a great time. It was an awesome time. Nice to see you. Thanks for being here. Uh, if you're tuning in online, uh, thank you for being here as well. Um, man, we're living in a Petri dish right now, aren't we? It's just crazy the last couple weeks. Every hour and a half, I think I got to text somebody else. It was... Oh. Uh, struggling. I just came out of quarantine just a day and a half ago. I didn't, I didn't get hit too hard. Um, it was fairly mild, but um, boy, I know y'all are feeling it and probably been through it, or you know somebody that's been through it. It's just crazy times. And so I'm thankful for the production team that we have the capacity to pump this thing out so that everybody that wants to be involved can be involved, and we're, we're super glad y'all are here. Um, we're looking at the book of Mark, and we're running into Mark chapter 3, uh, which is, uh, it starts out, it's a bit of a heartbreaking story um, in and of itself, uh, but if you allow it to penetrate your own heart, it, it, it can, it, it's, it's heartbreaking if we look in the mirror even. There's some things that are associated with how we tend to act and react with Jesus um, that we probably otherwise don't really like to see. Uh, but it's always important to do that. But So we're, we're kind of pressing through this um, gospel narrative, taking a look at Jesus' life and understanding, um, maybe more than anything else, what it looks like to live a life of faith. Uh, sometimes we forget that Jesus was the one who demonstrated that perfectly for us. Um, he was uh, challenged with all the same temptations and difficulties of uh, humanity, yet had the capacity to overcome those in perfect fashion. And live by faith. So we get to see um, how it looks to live by faith. It's maybe the understatement of a lifetime to say that that's a challenge, uh, but we have a king and a master and a savior to lead us through. So we're looking at we're looking at his life. We're doing sort of a nested series inside of that series in the in the month of January that talks about our core values uh, of a, being a worshipful church. And a missional church, and a relational church. And this message uh, follows up worshipful from last week and starts to lean toward relational. This one sort of sits in the, in the middle between worshipful and relational. Nonetheless, um, we want to look into these values. Um, they're not values that we just kind of dreamed up out of thin air. When Jesus was asked what is most important, this is the way he answered, essentially. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love others uh, like you love yourselves, and go and make disciples. Love those that are far from you. So that's where we just kind of coalesce that down into being a worshipful people and a relational people and a missional people. We try to be that. We're also trying to become that. It's a transformative process. So to recap worshipful a little bit, um, <clears throat> it was interesting to note in the Gospel of Matthew near the very end, uh, after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he asked his disciples to meet him in the mountains uh, of Galilee, which they did. <clears throat> and the scripture, uh, Matthew recounts it this way, says the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted, which is crazy to think about. Some doubted. Here, here's a man who had demonstrated in every way that he was the son of God. The miracles that he performed, the, the compassion that he showed. There was nothing about Jesus that would have invalidated that claim at all. Everything in his life testified to it. Yet, even after being raised to new life, some doubted. 
And I suggested last week, I'll say it again this week, that I don't know the nature of that doubt. There's all sorts of things that rest at the core of our doubts. But it's unlikely that these 11 who were so close with Jesus would have had any question in their mind that he was the Son of God. It, it, like I said, it, just, it, was, it had to be utterly apparent to them. So when it says that they doubted, it likely means something more like they doubted whether or not it was the best thing for their life to follow him. Right? That's a different thing. You, you, can, you can look at Jesus and imagine that he is everything that you could possibly want in a king, in a savior, in a leader. That everything about him, you would say, yes, this is, this is, he is it. But then when you evaluate soberly, honestly, whether or not you're going to follow him, there's where the hesitation would likely come. I showed you a picture last week of... Uh, a guy by the name of uh, Waldemir Sierpinski, at least it's the way I say it. Uh, he was an East German uh, marathoner. It's him on the right. It's just some kid that decided to run with him. <laughs> it's amazing. Good old days. Anybody could be in the Olympic marathon. He broke the world record. He shattered the, the Olympic record uh, in Montreal in 1976 and didn't realize that he'd crossed the finish line. He kept running. The whole crowd was going crazy because he just kept on running. And what I suggested was this is the same sort of experience that Jesus had when he showed up to his own people, to the people of God who had been anticipating the Messiah. They had been living their life according to rituals and practices that anticipated the Messiah. In fact, they did things and they acted in ways and they had um, religious rites that, would in, that were inviting of the Messiah, compelling God to send the Messiah. And so then he comes, but they kept running the same race. We're the same way. We are presented with the opportunity to follow Jesus and his ways. And like the disciples, we doubt we hesitate. We are more comfortable running the race that we've been running. Or we misunderstand completely what Jesus has come to present as the good news, and we don't embrace it, and so we're running this old race. It's, it's kind of shocking, really, how consistently... Christians, and I include myself in this, for sure, live out of alignment with Jesus' message of grace and forgiveness. We continue to run what maybe is more compelling and, and maybe more comfortable, um, this race of performance this, this endeavor of life to get an A-plus in God's eyes and to earn his approval. is a many, many God-fearing, Christ-oriented, church-going people like you and me wrongly understand Jesus primarily as a moral standard. Maybe I should ask that as a question. Who is Jesus in your mind? 
it's, it's not unlikely that although he is a moral standard, it's not unlikely that we would assume and conclude and live our lives that that, that is the primary role of Jesus, to be a moral standard. That we then, if we choose to follow him, that we would live up to. But that's in fact the old race. God didn't, God didn't actually need a moral standard, a new standard bearer for what was holiness, what was morality. He didn't need that. It, it was clear in all that God had shown and delivered through his prophets and through Moses and through the commandments. It was clear what God's moral expectations were. There was plenty of information for that, plenty of proof, plenty of understanding. We didn't need a new standard bearer for holiness. Jesus' primary role is not to recall everyone to holiness. That's always been the call of God. He sent his son primarily to take the punch, to take the the wrath, the punishment, what is deserved for the unholiness that does exist. To stop the madness of performance-based approval. We have to let that sink in. Jesus came and certainly did raise the standard for holiness. But that wasn't the primary mission. The primary mission was to fall in the gap for unholiness and offer a new way of life that is one of forgiveness and mercy and faith and grace. You've heard these verses. This is John chapter 3, verses 16, 17, 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Listen to this. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That's what a standard bearer does. A standard bearer, a perfect standard, in any shape or form, think about any standard in your life, any code of conduct, any performance set of performance uh, criteria that you are supposed to live up, what does it do to you? It condemns you. It shows you where you're wrong. That's not why. Certainly Jesus does that. But the reason God sent him was not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus didn't come as a standard. He came as a savior. He didn't come to call people into better performance, but to rescue them from the condemnation that their performance deserves. The good news that we read in Mark chapter 1 and throughout the New Testament 
That life as it was intended to be with Jesus now is no longer an exhausting, unreachable godliness. That's what life was before Jesus, this exhaustive effort to be godly. With Jesus, it is now a life of forgiveness and peace. A life with God himself through the struggle of life. So we've got, we've got to get that squared away. Or our Christian life, hear me on this. If we don't get that squared away, some understanding, clear understanding of what Jesus truly came to do, our Christian life won't have anything really to do with Jesus. That's kind of scary to think about, isn't it? To be a Christian, but to have no real understanding of what Jesus provides. This is a battle. Is it a performance-based life or is it a forgiveness and grace life in Christ? And this is the battle we see. This is the heartbreaking battle we see in Mark chapter 3. This battle of what does it mean to be truly godly? If you find yourself pondering at any point in time, am I living a godly life? Is this what God has for me? Is this how I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be, where I'm supposed to be? This is a great question. We see the tension of that working itself out really quickly here. Mark chapter 3, the very beginning of God, Jesus' ministry, this tension showing up. We begin to see what is truly important to Jesus and to those who follow him or worship him. So he goes into a synagogue. <laughs> oh, no. Mark starts so many stories like he was, in the, he was in the house of God and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. You, you can feel the tension right off the bat. And maybe this is a good first point. This is probably a good first point right here. It helps to realize that when Jesus calls... You sense in your heart a, 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 a being compelled to follow Jesus. Understand. Consciously remember. Make note of the fact it's going to create a conflict in your heart and in your life. If you have invited anybody to Christ within the promise context of it will make your life better, <laughs> that might not be the best way to say it. There's truth in that. There's truth in that. But the most practical truth, the most practical understanding for a new Christian 
is it creates a problem. I have been at the table or near the table with people, around people, and aware of people that have battled through their own decision to follow Christ. And the ones that do it quickly, I have the most concern about. The ones that labor over that decision on some level, I think, have a deeper grasp of exactly maybe more what they're getting into, which is important. Maybe a good first point here is to remember that following Jesus creates some conflict. These men are looking to see if the supposed Messiah is going to follow them. Well, let me say it this way. These guys are trying to see if the Messiah is going to come along with their understanding of God. <laughs> The rules and the, and, the, and the rituals that days of his day established. Is Jesus going to align with us? This is how we live. This is how we understand God. Is Jesus going to come along? This is how Adam has taught uh, in the past. He said, we, uh, Jesus has come to put our hearts on trial. We tend to put Jesus on trial. And that's what they're doing. They're putting Jesus on trial. Jesus is, is, is wanting to get at the heart of all things, and they've got Jesus on trial. You can see this in your own life. Jesus' call on your life creates conflict. It will. Of course it will. Jesus taught it himself in the middle of the book of Luke. I, I, Come back to this passage quite often. He's, he's going out to teach, and there's a large crowd following him. Why is that? Remember, we've talked about this. He taught with authority. He had a thing. He, he, you talk about X factor. He just had it. When he spoke the truth, people know you were just compelled to follow him. So it made sense that there was a crowd following him. But Jesus understood following him created conflict, and they weren't understanding it. So it cracks me up. He's got this crowd following him. He stops. He turns around and says, hey, if anyone comes to me but doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What's he saying? He's saying literally that they should hate their family. No, it's not. You should, he's, you should honor your mother and your father. What's he saying? This is going to be a problem for the things in this life that you love, that you respect, that you trust. You're going to have to stop that sort of attachment to attach to me. Following me, trusting me, creates terrible conflict. And if you're just following me, there's a problem. He knew that only a few people really were going to follow him. It's a, it's a tough deal. We, we tend to want to hang on to what we love. We want to hang on to those who love us. We want to 
have what we have and do what we do. But to follow Jesus means to let go of some of that stuff. We hang on to our issues pretty strongly. I don't know if you realize that. The very first, one of the very first steps that Jesus asks people to take uh, when they commit to him is to be baptized. I don't know if you've been baptized. If you were baptized as a, as a young person, um, that's a good thing. Because to be baptized as an adult is a kind of a weird thing. In our own minds, it's not weird. But as an adult who has dignity and ironed clothes and well-groomed hair to go up in front of a bunch of people and go underwater and then come up. This is a weird thing. I know many of people who have not taken the step of baptism because it's too hard to think about themselves personally doing that. That's a perfect example of exactly what we're talking about. We tend to have stuff that we want to hang on to, things that worry us, and following Jesus means to let go of some of our own pride and some of our own issues and some of our own, you know, we can barely get to the first step without being faced with that very kind of fact. So there's this man in the synagogue with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees want to see if Jesus heals him or tries to heal him, which is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Now I want to put yourself in the room. And the man with the shriveled hand, Jesus has him stand up and come right up. What, what do you see? If you could put yourself in that space, what do you see? What, what does Jesus want them to see? Well, the first thing we see is a real man. Not a guinea pig. It wouldn't surprise me if this man with his shriveled hand was outside the worship service, outside the temple, and they brought him in there as a setup. I, I don't know. He was sitting there as a guy with a shriveled hand, not a, not a person. And Jesus stands this person up, and, and they can see he's a person. He's hurting. He's probably embarrassed. He's flawed. He's been rejected. Insecure. A man that feels generally undeserving of healing. A guy that probably questions the existence of God. How could, how could a loving God leave my hand all shriveled up like this? 
This is a guy who's suffering. Are you with me? And he, he says, could you stand up for a minute? It's also a man who is already understanding the actual heart of God. Remember, Jesus taught with authority. There was something about him that impacted you deeply if you were humble. And Jesus says, come here, stand up here, friend. And I'm guessing he looked at him in his eyes, you know? Winked at him. I know this is hard. Hang in there. So there's a man who's hurting. He's rejected. But in this moment, he's probably feeling on top of the world. He's, he's get a sense from this Messiah that he's heard about that he matters to him. <laughs> this guy's life right now. Jesus said, come here. Stand up here. Everybody's looking at him. There's a huge contrast going on right here. You talk about tension. Here's a man with a shriveled hand, a man in need, a man in need of compassion, a man that God loves. And most everybody else in the room is trying to catch Jesus in a trap by using him. a horrible contrast. I used to play the game Risk, <clears throat> and now I don't have time. It's quicker to play 18 holes of golf <laughs> than it is to play the game of Risk. But we used to play with a group of friends when I was in my 20s, and um, that was the last time I had time <laughs> 25 years ago. And this one guy that we asked to join us was really uh, struggling in his marriage, really bad. And he was really prideful about it. He wasn't working on it. You know, it was just like we were trying to reach this guy. <clears throat> and one of my friends who was an amazing uh, person, uh, he had an ability to connect with others. He was very busy in his life, but he would make efforts to reach out to all of us, really. And... We get together to play Risk, and this one guy comes in, and he, he's super, like I said, he's very prideful. He's very into his own way of doing everything. And he was late, and he goes, sorry I'm late, but not one single blade of grass is out of alignment in my yard. So he spent Saturday morning getting everything exactly right, every leaf, every blade of grass, like it's perfect. And my friend goes, cool, how's your marriage? <laughs> it was like, Wow. But the, he just couldn't handle the, the, the condom. It was like, yeah, you're so into this, your performance of your lawn. What about, what about your wife? What about your marriage? And Jesus stands this guy up. He says, you guys are so into how great you are and how godly you are and proving how godly you are. You see this man? 
Jesus presses the point. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Hey, have you created, have you created any laws that make it wrong to do good or to give life on the Sabbath? Is it okay to do good? Is it okay to give life on Saturday? Have you created some law that makes it ungodly to do a godly thing? There's still a person standing there. And now this is a pride issue. This is a major conflict right here. What are you going to do, guys? What are you going to do? You've set this whole thing up. And here's the person who needs, I almost said a hand, but he actually needs a hand. Are they going to hold the line here? Are they going to keep trying to catch Jesus? Or are they going to repent? Are they going to show some humility? Are they going to show some compassion? Are they going to yield to God? These guys know the scriptures. They know 1 Samuel. They understand. They remember hearing this. It is better to listen and respond to God than to practice the rituals by which you honor God. I'm paraphrasing. It is better to listen and obey than to give your greatest gift. Jesus is saying, I see your energy and your work. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? Can we do this? And what did they do? They remained silent. Can you imagine that? Nothing. And listen to Jesus. This is a serious deal right here. I don't even think people are comfortable reading this. He looked around at them in anger. Deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. This is deeply disturbing to Jesus. It almost sounds like he's shocked. How is it possible that the elders, the leaders of the people of God, given the opportunity to exercise the heart of God, sit there in order to defend their way, their views, So Jesus, I mean, can you, he's like, he's, he's looking around this room going, seriously, nobody, nobody? So he turns and he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was completely restored. Well, now what? Now what? Jesus 
draws a line in the sand and says, your way or my way? What's it going to be? You know who I am? I just proved it again, again. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. Are you going to come here or stay there? Are you, are you with me or against me? Well, it all depends. It depends on how committed they are to their own power, to their own way, the things that they trust, the, the things that they've earned, the positions that they've come to, how much of a grip are they going to hold on that will determine. The condition of their heart is going to determine whether they're going to follow Jesus or not. What do they do? Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Wow. Wow. That's a pretty strong commitment to what they want to do. They're going to work together with the very regime that is oppressing them in order to get rid of Jesus. On the Sabbath, they're going to plot murder. I have a lot of time to go into this, but one of the things that struck me was it is possible. It is, it is, it is possible that some things that make me feel godly are wicked. Some things that make me feel godly can lead me down a wicked path. The first verse I ever memorized, I think I was in like second grade or something like that. However old you are when you're eight or seven. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways submit to him. And I, and I know precisely why someone taught me that verse first. Even at seven, pretty much felt like I knew everything. I didn't. And I don't. But I can come across that way. And someone said, you know, not lean on your own understanding. When you submit to him, believe for at least a moment that his way is the right way and not yours, and he will make your path straight rather than crooked or wicked. These are powerful moments. I need to wrap it up. So let me just talk real briefly here about three things that we learned here today. Number one, expect the patterns of your life to be disrupted, upended. If you want to follow Jesus, expect the patterns and the priorities of your life to come in conflict with where Jesus wants to lead you. 
Once we begin to worship Jesus, we need to make him central in our life, recognize him as king, trust him as the way, the truth, and the life. It creates a very practical tension. Just expect that. And I don't mean to suggest that you should expect it once early on. This is life. Remember, it's what we're looking at. Romans chapter 5, Mark chapter 1. Life is a struggle of trusting God, trusting Jesus. Second, um, expect performance to be the issue that keeps you from Jesus. It is your performance that is going to keep you from Jesus. And here's what I, I mean. That's in both directions. Either you're good or you're bad. Performance. Your good performance, when you get so excited about how well you've performed, you can't embrace the Jesus that has come to die for those failures that you don't see beneath your good performance. And oftentimes our bad performance keeps us from Jesus as well because we condemn ourselves. We feel like we don't deserve it. We don't, just like that man, thinking, no one, I, I don't even deserve to have my, yes, no, it doesn't matter. It is not about your performance. When you're following of Jesus, when your worship keeps coming back to you and how well you're doing or not, <clears throat> remember, it's not about that. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to condemn. Stop trying to perform your way into God's mercy and to stop allowing your performance to keep you from accepting the grace of Jesus. And then third, expect people and real needs to be how Jesus exposes all that's wrong with you. <laughs> expect Jesus to, to stand somebody up that, that needs compassion not rules, not condemnation, someone that needs mercy and grace. Expect God to stand somebody up in your life and cause you to deal with who Jesus is. When what you're fighting for or what you're trying to win begins to take precedence over real people with real needs, we need to humble ourselves and receive the grace of God in our own life and let our hearts be changed. Let me read from the Old Testament, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, to close. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So uh, take a minute. Let's clear our minds here a little bit. Let's uh, bow our heads, put ourselves in a posture of learning, right? Let's not take the posture of a prideful Pharisee, but a humble man with a shriveled hand and allow God a moment here to show us where we might need to allow a disruption to happen where we've put performance um, between Jesus and me and 
even a few moments about the depth of compassion that we have or don't have in our heart uh, for people. And through all that thought and consideration, let me encourage you just to hold the hand of Jesus while you do it and know that his grace is sufficient for you. wants to transform your heart. That like the man with the shriveled hand, he's proud to stand you up and call you his own. And to give you good gifts. And to walk with you through it all. Just take a minute. Be with Jesus.